and I started looking at the market, I could see a lot of people, in fact, the Trammell Crows and the Amleys and the JPIs were all descending into the market that we were in, not, not only geographically, but the product type, right? Sure. And the, the market segment. And, you know, we're like, you know, dude, I don't, I like, I was now like wise enough in my business career at that time. I go, you know, we don't want to be competing. I love doing these projects. I love doing urban housing, but we don't want to be trying to go up against those because when the market turns, which it will eventually, and I don't mean like I'm fatalistic. I'm just like thinking of realities operations. The market cycle is always going to be there. (laughs) And it's just a function of how well we prepare and anticipate for it. And I was already thinking of it. In fact, you know, uh, about two and a half years ago, we converted all of our projects from merchant build, where we build them, rent them, and sell them immediately, to a long-term hold. And the predominant, you know, reason for that, well, really two. One, one, we we're just such firm believers in this undersupply, you know, socially beneficial housing type that we're like, this is such a great model. Like, we want to do as much as of it as we can. But also, you know, this is when it started. People started talking about oh, we're in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. We're getting, like, we're starting to get close to it and then eventually passed it. That was 10 years, I think, as I recall. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, and welcome to episode number 45 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am extremely excited to share this next conversation with all of you today. There is tons of gold in this episode, I can promise you that. Scott is the founder of the Urban Pacific Group of Companies. Scott oversees all operations of the Urban Pacific family of companies, including business development, capital acquisitions, and strategic planning. Prior to forming Urban Pacific, Scott was Director of Land Acquisition for the Multifamily Development Division of the Irvine-based Ceres Regis Group. In that position, he is responsible for all land acquisition activities for the development of luxury, market rate, and senior rental communities throughout California, Colorado and Arizona. And before joining Ceres Regis, Scott was the Kaufman and Broad Multi Housing Group. As senior project manager, he was responsible for all the activities related to multifamily development, including the acquisition, entitlement, syndication, and development of over 1,900 affordable multifamily units throughout the Western United States. And prior to that, Scott was a project manager with the Irvine-based Snyder Langston Real Estate and Construction Services Company. Needless to say, Scott has tons of practical experience in the real estate development field. And for over 50 years, Urban Pacific and its founding family have been developers of premier residential and commercial projects, including development of the Long Beach World Trade Center and the Axis at Westminster Project. Urban Pacific and the Chopin family have been have built superior identities of trust, value, authority, and leadership in the real estate development domain throughout the nation. Now in this episode, we are going to discuss founding Urban Pacific, the attributes of successful developments, and how they can impact surrounding neighborhoods and towns. 
and how developers can potentially make the leap from working with a firm to owning their own development firm. There is loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate Scott for taking the time out of his extremely busy schedule to discuss this topic of workforce housing development with me today. Now, as always, if you have enjoyed this show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in this industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. Now, without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Thank you for the invite. Definitely. Glad to have you on here. You're no stranger to the podcast. I I appreciate that. This will be a fun one. (laughs) Yeah, looking forward to it. So I gave you a little intro before the call, but in your own words, can you just give us a little idea about your background and then we'll transition that into founding mm-hmm. Urban Pacific and, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So Scott Choppin, I founded Urban Pacific, uh, the Urban Pacific Group of Companies uh, is a real estate development firm uh, located in Southern California, and we've been operational for 21 years, actually, this month as our 21st year of operations, wow. which is sort of cool. Congratulations. Uh, although, although at this point, Matt, I probably go, let's just have the number stop. <laughs> like, it shouldn't get any bigger. Now. Right. Um, no. So, so we, you know, we're uh, an urban infill and workforce housing development company, urban, you know, what you would expect, you know, we're, we don't build on green fields, you know, we build inside of cities and existing neighborhoods and existing neighborhood fabric, um, infill, meaning we're looking for sites that are available inside of that fabric. Mm-hmm. And then workforce housing is, um, you know, building fa- uh, housing for families and people that need, you know, a, a version of affordable housing, although ours isn't, you know, what I call true affordable housing, meaning government subsidized. But really what we do is we build a product called Urban Townhouse or UTH for short. And what we do in that is we build a townhouse rental product with five bedrooms and four bathrooms. And we build it in urbanized suburbs throughout really Southern California is where we're operative now. And that's intended to serve really predominantly multi-generational, multi-earner households to provide them really a, how, a, a housing type that's coherent with their family, right? If you have multiple generations, i.e. multi-gen, you know, this is a product that, you know, serves, you know, that family type. And then also because these families typically practice what I call an economic sharing lifestyle, um, <clears throat> they have multiple earners in the household, which mm-hmm. gives them a deeper resilience in both uh, affording housing, right? Cause we're in California where we're the highest housing cost market relative to incomes in the United States, and also in a recessionary environment, like we're, you know, sort of coming out of now, um, they, they are much more able to be resilient because they have these multiple earners. And, you know, mm-hmm. in fact, multiple earners solves both those issues. So we, about four and a half years ago, uh, basically divested of all our other different uh, real estate development types. I mean, that was all still urban, but we went entirely to this UTH model. And in fact, as I shared with you earlier, we're in the midst of forming a uh, an equity fund called the UTH Workforce Housing Fund One, which will be exclusively dedicated to provide you know pool of equity to develop uh, you know multiple of these UTH projects throughout Southern California. So uh, we've been you know uh, focused on that for four and a half years. Uh, I think this is probably a product type that has you know decades in front of it, just given the 
reality of trying to produce housing for middle-income families and, and also roommates sometimes too, um, that we have, you know, very long, uh, you know, you know, time period ahead of us to, to sure. in which to develop this product. Sure. And I'm definitely going to hit on that. Let's, <laughs> let's go back. Let's rewind a little bit to the beginning stages of you getting, starting this firm. Uh, what did that look like? Yeah, great question. So, uh, a couple different ways to to think of it. Um, you know, I worked uh, after I got out of college. I I purposely worked. Uh, I have a family background in real estate development, so that's part of the reason I I chose that as a career, and a, and ultimately uh, to become an entrepreneur in real estate. And I worked for several companies professionally to get really like a corporate, you know, high level education in, 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 you know, professional real estate development companies. And so I I spent about five years roughly doing that. Um, And, you know, it, it, I had always had intention to work for myself. So even when I was like 18 or 19, I made, you know, really two decisions. One was to work for myself in real estate development. And two was uh, like to, you know, start my career development path, which is, you know, go get a college degree. You know, I've got a degree, a business administration degree with finance specialization. Then I went to work for these companies for, for a few years. But I always had it in the back of my mind that was a, there was going to be a point where it would made sense for me to, to, you know, to launch and start a company and really become an entrepreneur, right? So I uh, basically worked for one company for about four years uh, for a guy named Mike Costa at a company at the time that was called Kaufman or Bro Multi-Housing Group, subsidiary of a big national home building company that, uh, that that subsidiary focused on developing new construction apartment projects. Spent about a year at a company called Syracuse Regents Group, again, doing more multifamily, although that was market rate where Kaufman Road was affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. Government subsidized. And, um, you know, I felt like at the end of the year uh, of being at Sears Regis, like I had reached a point, at least in my perception, that I was probably not going to advance a bunch more. Gotcha. Uh, and so it was, it was time. So literally, you know, made the decision, driving home, called my wife and said, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm going to start my own company, you know, you know, let's go. What do you think? Surely this wasn't the first time she heard about this, right? You know, I think, you know, it's actually a good question uh, yeah. that nobody's ever asked that. And, and I hadn't really <laughs> thought about that. I think that I can't, ha- I don't have any clear recollection, but I know from the time I was like, you know, 19 years old, I was like, I knew that this was going to happen. Like I right. knew in my, you know, in, in my, you know, my head and my heart that this is where I was going to go. So I'm sure she knew that. What I also, but here she shared with me, but I did, she said, I didn't know I was going to get that call, you know, that day. Right. <laughs> right. Like, you know, she was I think not she prepared was, for that. <laughs> yeah. I think she was like, well, you could have prepared me a little bit more. Right. Like, you know, give me a little warning, you know, um, and, and that's fair. Actually, I, I, I think about it now. And actually, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have adjusted the way I did it slightly with this, you know, and this is what I, you know, what I tell people who are thinking about starting their careers, I probably would have worked for another two to five years professionally hmm. with the, with the specific intention to get into a higher level executive position at a real estate development company okay. and import as importantly, or more importantly from that, 
build a network of people in like institutional capital sources and, and lenders that could see me operate successfully at a high executive level for these other companies and then and then leave then and then you bring this network of people with you That's and you're already point. basically set up and a known source at a high level and people have seen you in action you know trust you know you can deliver and then you have a wider network mm-hmm. by by launching when i did i was 32 which by the way statistically is the 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 the, the highest likelihood early 30s to to become you know to you know launch as an entrepreneur statistically uh, so, you know, I was like right on time, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, I think there's a certain point you, you've matured in your career, like, you, you know, you're still young enough and have the energy and the, and the, you know, the, you know, the sort of the intestinal fortitude to do that. But I would advise now, like, like work more years, build that network and mm-hmm. then launch. And I've seen a few people that I observed that did that, like, you know, one particular guy, I won't name any names, but he worked for a company called Trammell Crow. Mm-hmm. And Trammell Crow is, a, you know, like one of the biggest apartment development companies in the United States. Um, he was like a what they call a regional partner, as I think what they call it. But basically, he would have an area, like a territory to develop in the Pacific Northwest. And then he left and launched like really, you know, in a very you know big way. And I'm not saying launching big is better than launching small and growing. I mean, although some people would argue that differently. Um, but it noted, I noticed it. Like I go, oh, this guy launched. He left Trammell Crow. He started several projects, and he had like really big name equity investors with him. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's not a mistake. Like he did that like purposely. And I go, oh, that's the model. Like if we're looking again. So no, I don't suffer over it, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I basically from you know 32 for the, the first few years, like I had to basically do that. I had to grow that's that tough, network yeah. of people, and and we've done it. And you know, the market's always shifting. So you're shifting with it and, and the networks that are necessary to be successful. But that'd be some one way I'd look at it. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I've never really thought about it like that. But that, that makes a lot of sense to build that network and have that support whenever you do take And that's step. probably true in many different business domains. True. You know, I, I can't think of a specific example, but, you know, really the, the, the powerful part of that is the networks, right? You know, building that strong group of people that trust and believe in you and, and have seen you perform. And then that's so valuable. I mean, yeah. in fact, I, you know, I have, I have three kids. I advise all my kids, like focus on the networks. Like when they go to college, yeah, get your college education, but work on the network mm-hmm. more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I don't say, you know, you know, mess up, you know, not mess up, but, you know, like defocus a little bit on the schoolwork to increase the focus on the, on the building of networks. Balance it out. Balance it out. Yeah. Cause you know, like, like today's kids are like, you know, we, you know, for better or worse in the American school system and, 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 you know, high, you know, parents that are like expect have high expectations of themselves and their kids you know, you want to come out of college straight A's. In fact, you have to do that in order to compete for the, for the best Mm -hmm. colleges. And that takes a certain, you know, style of working, which is, you know, very focused on the, on the functional, get this paper done, take that test study. Um, But, you know, you lose the, like, I'm learning to learn and hold it for a long time. It's short-term learning, not long-term learning, Right. but also they carry that into college. And and so they're like, Oh, I got to go to college and get straight A's. And, and actually, a, a person I work with, like in a, in a business learning network, uh, my friend Eric McDermott, he, he was the one who, who spoke this to me. He goes, you know, if I had to do it over again, 
I wouldn't do a hundred percent towards the grades. I yeah. do like 80% for the grades. So instead of getting A's, get like B's mm -hmm. is the way I listened what he said, <laughs> but, but use that other 20% of the time to like build networks, like meet people and, and, you know, establish relationships and, you know, whatever you would do in your version of, you know, building networks, but it's right. meeting people to build relationships for the future. Cause when you go out of college, then all those people become diaspora and go over, you know, the United States of the world. And, you know, that's the real values there. Right. I mean, at, after a period of time, nobody, you know, you know, this and everybody knows, no one gives a crap about what your grades were in college. I mean, maybe right. your MBA, if you did that, but I, I tell people, if you build your network correctly, you don't need an MBA. Right. I mean, and in fact, if, if you're going to do an MBA, guess what? Networks. <laughs> right. That's what like, you're building. Use that, yeah. Use that as another vehicle for your networks. Like if that's, you know, and, and some people do that, right? That, that's their launch into maybe institutional finance or Wall Street or, you know, institutional real estate, that kind of thing. Well, you brought up another point that I liked is that you were saying, you get a chance to show others what you can do. And I think that's probably the hardest part for people starting out in, in a career like real estate development or in, in that field is showing others, you know, you can have that network behind you that has that experience, but to have that experience yourself is invaluable, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so think of it this way and then you're right on the money, Matt. So here's where I go with it. So, so like, think about trust, right? Like what, what really people, when they see you in action, they know that you know what to do. So like if they invest with you, you're not going to mess it up. Like mm -hmm. they go, Oh, I've seen this person take on a deal, do all the problem solving for deal, get it through, you know, like produce the end result and make money with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But really, if you think about it, what trust is the way I think of it, it's made up of three components. It's uh, sincerity, reliability, and competence and competence. Like you need all three of those in order for trust to be truly built and maintained, lose anyone and you lose trust um, when you're building, don't have any one of those three and then people won't ultimately trust you. So what that means is, you know, sincerity is like, you mean what you say, mm -hmm. right? So if you're going to say you're going to be a, in a place that like, or, or you make a promise um, that you, you hold to it, right? Like you're, you're like, you, you, Hey Matt, I'm going to be there on Tuesday at 9am. You can trust that I, like, Hey guy, I know Scott, when he says it, like he really means it. He's going to mm -hmm. do everything he can to do. Okay. That's sincerity. Reliability is like you actually do it. Right. right. So you could say it and really mean it in the moment, but the reliability comes into like, oh, he did, really did show up at nine. I mean, he's there, and and mm -hmm. and and as importantly, he was spot on nine, right? Like perfectly on time. You go, oh, I and do that over and over and over again, right? People yeah. get to trust that, like, you always deliver that, right? You mean what you say, you 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 make promises, and then you actually deliver on them. And then confidence comes in where you go, they know what they're doing in that domain. Right. So if somebody says, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I need that no one would ever speak it this way, but I, I, I need to trust Scott, right. I'm an investor. I want to trust him. Well, they need to see that I actually technically know and have the knowledge in order to execute or my team does my company right. does, you know, culturally. And then, so in your instance, like people go, Oh, that guy's on time. He's, he's so reliable. But when he really starts to work on the deals, man, he screws it up. Falls apart. Yeah. And, and they go, I, I can't, I can't do that. Right. Like you go, he, Hey, you know, I even said this about people, nice guy, 
really good good guy to work with like you know means well but, but. you can't you know whatever whoever you might be talking about you can't develop his way out of a you know paper bag right to, to use it you know colloquially sure. here but, and that's really what what i mean when people see you in action they they have all those things that you're building along that whole time you know you're, you're over and over reliable you're over and over speaking commitments that you fulfill you're an over and over proving to people like, and particularly in real estate development, real estate development's like just a, a, you know, in a way, a really long chain of problem solving sure. at a different like intensities, right? Uh, from the very beginning to the very end. And even when you're like, we hold all of our apartments long-term now, even in the long-term, you still are problem solving. You Absolutely. know, like we had, we had a project that had like a water issue and it's already operational and renting, and now we got to problem solve that, right? And so, right. you know, it's a series of probably thousands of, you know, problem solved, some big, many of them small, some of them medium. And then, you know, somebody, an investor or a partner, somebody would work with you, you know, each time it comes, the person goes, oh yeah, I, I've, you know, maybe I've been through this before or, or I, ha I have the person that who can do this thing you know, like, like part of my network, again, back to networks, I got this really good guy. He, he's, you know, Hey investor, we got this problem. I got this guy and he comes yeah. in, boom. Right. So you look like a hero because you knew the person who could solve that problem. So competence, not as just your own embodied knowledge, but competence also is your networks, right? If you have mm -hmm. really smart, brilliant, co competent, capable networks, guess what? That's your, you know, that you, uh, that accrues to you you know, as the entrepreneur, the owner of the company. No, that's, that's great. That, wow. We could, we could talk about that for this, this whole segment, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, but let's well, say, Hey, Matt, let's do another one. Yeah, like you we know, got another let's one. talk in a year and we'll, yeah. we'll, we can dig into that. Yeah. Foundations right here. So it, it really is. And I'll just share this point that, that really is, I observed my own career is really, you know, I mean, my my technical knowledge of real estate development, and, and I'm speaking in apartment, new construction, residential, right. right, you know, in the Western United States. So it's very domain specific, is like, you know, really good, right? But where I've seen the growth in my own career and my own capability to, to, you know, be a productive, profitable entrepreneur really is all these other things that mm -hmm. are not like specific to real estate, building networks, building trust, Sincerity, reliability, competence, right? Um, those are fundamental to every business, right? Because all humans, when they transact in, in a business environment, have to trust the other party. If they don't trust them, they won't transact with them, right? So that's useful in all places. Yeah. I mean, really, the slogan of this show should be it's a people business because I feel like everyone I've talked to uh, pretty much reiterates that fact. And it's, uh, you know, it's a people business. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's that fundamental. But. So, so I study uh, in a group called the IG network uh, with a, to a guy named Toby Hecht and Toby says the best, he goes, business is really, you should call it human business, mm -hmm. right? Cause all businesses is, is, you know, transaction and interrelation of people, right? Even mm -hmm. a company, you know, you go, you got a Trammel Crow. Well, that's made up of a bunch of people. You got General Electric, a bunch of people or Pacific, a bunch of people, you know? Um, so that really is, you know, and, and, that, and that's why trust like is so important because that's trusting people 
or humans in, in human business, right? I always love when Toby said that, you know, it's really, yeah. you think about it, you go, you're right. You know, it's always human, always inner, you know, social and, you know, trust and all that kind of stuff. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, well, let's let's transition this into the the human end user that you're you're <laughs> working with. So, workforce housing. You said you've done this for you focused on this for about four and a half years now. Why why the transition into focusing? Or <laughs> and you mentioned that you know a couple points already mm-hmm. of having the more stability with uh, two working adults most mm-hmm. likely, and mm-hmm. but. Maybe we can dig in a little bit further and see why you made that transition. Yeah, yeah great question. So exactly like you said, I mean, fundamentally, you look at this, uh, you know, the, the type of people that we serve in, in these UTH units. From a business standpoint, really, it's how I listen to your question. You know, you go, why does it make sense to, to do that, one, and focused on it, too? One is that we, in our Urban Townhouse UTH program, the way that we put the deals together, we're able to consistently pr- produce profitable new construction projects, you know, over, you know, now almost a five-year period, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, general, you know, viability and profitability would be would be one. Two is really, I think, like sustainability. And, and where mm-hmm. sustainability shows up is in, in delivering units in an undersupplied, really a deeply undersupplied marketplace, right? If you look at the development marketplace and any of this would be any location, really globally, any, any location, but let's say the United States, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have true affordable housing. So that's government subsidized rental housing that serves families and individuals and seniors, you know, at or below 60% of median income would be the typical, right? On the other end, you got the luxury, you know, think you're, mid-rise, high-rise product in downtown X, Y, or Z, right? It's, you know, super sexy, killer. Class you know, A. Yeah. Pool, right? You got mm-hmm. these two ends of the spectrum, but if you start to think about the middle, it's, it's, there's a gap there, right? Mm-hmm. And if we started to develop this UTH, the, the idea of UTH uh, came out of a specific opportunity and a specific deal. But as we started to shape that, that, that first project and saw how successful it was, I then sort of riff on the idea, go, okay, so this is interesting. So we developed this one project, you know, we saw who the, 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 the tenant profile was, the kind of rents that we could get. We knew that was viable, successful. We, we did a series of early small deals to prove the model. Well, what I call the demonstration phase, but also I started to shape the idea of like this, you know, middle income workforce housing. That's why I call it workforce housing versus affordable housing, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, those are a lot of people interchange those terms like, oh, mm-hmm. those are the same, right? No, for us, they're different. And I always define it when people ask. Um, so true affordable is government subsidized, lower incomes, you know, you got luxury, which is, you know, no, no income limit, you know, high dollar, right? Um, in the middle, you've got these working families. So you could call it middle, middle class, moderate income, median income, workforce housing. So it's for the people who make too much money to live in the true affordable. Like they're, 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 you know, they have themselves or, you know, are, you know, have, you know, whatever, viably employed. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably have several people in their family group that are viably employed. And, you know, they, they want to produce as much income as they can for their family because they want to live, you know, the best life that they can for their family, sure. of course, take care of their families, right? Of course. Well, that they're overqualified for, for affordable housing, true affordable housing. But on the other end of the spectrum, 
the the main thing that I look at is these families aren't going to live in the high end, high rise downtown X Y Z because it's a couple of things. One, it's not in a family environment. Like if we're thinking of families here, you know, downtown LA is cool. I love going down there, but I, I wouldn't try to have a family and ki- and raise kids down right. there, right? So the family um, demographic isn't a good fit. Usually those projects and those downtown locations are going to be like studio and one bedroom units. Well, those mm-hmm. families are going to live in a studio, of course you go. And then the third is that, you know, it's really, it's high, very high rent. In fact, it's the mm-hmm. highest rent that you're likely to find in any geographic market. So when you look at it from the family standpoint, they go, there's like three strikes against that. They go, no, no, I don't even think about that. In fact, they don't. Like if you talk to them, right. you know, Hey, what are you thinking about? Well, downtown LA is not one of the places that they're looking. Cause they, maybe they've looked, maybe they know about it. a friend lives there or whatever, you know, whatever, somebody they know. So we're, you know, building this housing into this middle market. And so really the two things that we think of, in fact, we call it right now recession resilient. So one is that we have these family groups that have very, very strong social networks, right? That, that are, that are, that they, they're, you know, gainfully employed. They have extended family around their kids are in school, their churches down the road. Maybe they're from that location originally, like they have a history there. Um, they have like really short commutes, 10 to 20 minutes on average for our tenants, oh, right? Then the other part of it is that they basically they have these multiple earners. So we talked about multi, multiple generation or multi-generational housing. Well, inside of that, there's, let's say you've got a family of five or a family of six, right? You know, and when I say multi-gen, it's usually, you know, grandparents, parents, and, you know, maybe adult kids or younger kids, right? Mm-hmm. But you're going to have three to five income earners in that household, and so that gives them the capability to, you know, to create a good stream of income. And then the interesting thing about these family groups is that they're naturally usually sharing the incomes and expenses across the, the family group. And I call that economic sharing, right? They're sharing the, the incomes and they're sharing the expenses across the family group, even though in many cases they may even live in separate units. You know, uh, you know, grandma and grandpa living over that unit, you know, mom and dad and two kids live in that unit. Well, if you could take those, that family and, and bring them into one unit, um, that, that would make for a better life because they're sharing their incomes, right? Um, they're affording better housing or they're affording good housing more capably, right? Like at mm-hmm. a lower percentage of their income. And then the third part of it is, that this, this market is undersupplied, right? So if you think of all three of those combined, right, we look at this as a recession resilient answer to the residential income producing, you know, apartment market, um, both in the capability to, you know, build and sustain those successfully, but also to provide a profitable, in fact, market superior risk adjusted returns. Um, and, you know, as a developer, you know, like, you know, we're, we raise capital, like that's one of the primary things that we do we find deals, execute on deals, raise capital and, and put those together to, in order to produce a profit. So, you know, that's really the why of, of, you know, why workforce housing, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a niche. Um, it's definitely contrarian to some degree. Like if you talk to most mainstream developers, in fact, the, the, the standard, uh, statement in the real estate media is all, oh, you know, that workforce housing, you know, new construction workforce housing doesn't work. I, you know, no, nobody can make that work. I was on a panel the other day and people were saying that and I'm like, you know, we, we figured it out. And, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not brilliant pat myself on the back. I, I, but, you know, part of this, you know, learning that I described with, with Toby Heck and the IG networks, 
to, to innovate, right? I have to create new types of business offers that are differentiated, that are uncommon, that are scarce, right? Mm -hmm. So that I'm not like competing into a, you know, hugely competitive market. In fact, that was four and a half years ago. We divested of all our like classic urban infill, higher density, middle density product because we we were, it was time to sell because the projects were done. So this is appropriate timing. Mm -hmm. But as we sold them and I started looking at the market, I could see a lot of people, in fact, the Trammell Crows and the Amleys and the JPIs were all descending into mm -hmm. the market that we were in, not not only geographically, but the product type, right? Sure. And the the market segment. And, you know, we're like, you know, dude, I don't, I like, I was now like wise enough in my business career at that time. I go, you know, we don't want to be competing. I love trying doing these compete, projects. Yeah. I love doing urban housing, but we don't want to be trying to go up against those because when the market turns, which it will eventually, and I don't mean like I'm fatalistic. I'm just like thinking of realities operations, the market cycle is always going to be there. <laughs> and it's just a yeah. function of how well we prepare and anticipate for it. And I was already thinking of it. In fact, you know, uh, about two and a half years ago, we converted all of our projects from merchant build, where we build them, rent them, and sell them immediately to a long-term hold. And the predominant, you know, reason for that, well, really two, one, one, we're just such firm believers in this undersupply, you know, socially beneficial housing type that we're like, this is such a great model. Like we want to do as much as we can, but also, you know, this is when it started, people started talking about, oh, we're in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history. We're getting, like, we're starting to get close to it and then eventually passed it. That was 10 years, I think, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And that really, to me, was a signal. I go, oh, okay. Like, because in 2008, we saw some signals, and I don't think we, we necessarily paid well enough attention to those signals. Um, but it really, when that showed up, I go, oh, that's it. So we talked about your model here and how you're, Long-term now, let's kind of dig back in real quick to what your ideal project looks like. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a common myth or two about workforce housing. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I think as far as an ideal project, I'll just like give you some bullet points, like how I think of it. <clears throat> um, you know, like if I think top down, our, our product really works best in major urban metro areas. So we're not going to be like, you know, far out suburbs or rural. This just doesn't work. Um, and in fact, there's parts of, you know, people that would think of urbanized California that, you know, don't work for us either. Like, you know, the Inland Empire, San Bruno, Riverside counties. So we want to be in, you know, like older. In fact, the, the, the term I use is urbanized suburbs. Okay. So in Southern California, which is famous for its sprawl. These would be, you know, neighborhoods that are older neighborhoods that sprawled, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and have become more urbanized. So there maybe there's more like other product types, you know, apartments and uh, office space, but it's older. It's all, you mm -hmm. know, generally older. That's going to be our, our primary market area um, uh, because it's close in to the. The, the working, you know, where people work, you know, I think the work centers or the job centers, um, but it's not a really far away commute, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's people who, you know, commute an hour or two. I'm not talking about those kind of people, but I'm talking really blue collar working class families that have these service jobs where it doesn't make any sense. You, you know, you wouldn't commute two hours to go work at Starbucks, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, and so what they, what they tend to do is they tend to 
choose their housing to be co-located, you know, to their family and the other things that are important to them, but it's also close to their job or, mm -hmm. you know, their job is close to their housing, but they make that decision together. Right. Um, you know, we, we need to be in markets that are, that have a high, uh, you know, arbitrage between re uh, rent prices or housing prices and incomes. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there's a graph that I use quite often from Pew Research that basically has, you know, housing prices doing this and incomes are doing this on a graph, right? So incomes are flat and housing prices are, are up. And it's a national statistic, so not right. specific to any market. But if you went into any major urban metro market, you would see that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that same angle, right? And in fact, you know, people are talking about the K-shape recovery and income inequality, well, this graph is income inequality because those incomes are stagnant and inflation and supply constraints, you know, driving housing prices up, you know, long-term. Uh, although I would say it's probably mostly inflationary, right? Your dollars buying less and less housing or right. your housing is becoming more expensive relative to your income, right? And so where we, where we build is in between these, in between this, that gap creates a business opportunity for us to, you know, solve for families to live more affordably. It's coherent with the incomes that they produce. Yes, it requires, at least in our model, for them to, to combine together in a family group. But look, the reality is most cultures outside the United States live multi-generationally anyways. Mm -hmm. Like they would think it would, was weird that you, you know, grandma lived over there and, you know, mom and dad lived over there, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, the, the idea of the, you know, nuclear family is sort of anathema historically, right? Like if you went back in the medieval times or, you know, pre-industrialized, you know, the United States, people lived multi-generationally much more often, right? right. In fact, you had to, right? Um, in certain cultures, Hispanic, Asian cultures, Indian cultures, living multi-generationally is like absolutely what you do. It would be, right. you would be looked down upon if you, if, you know, I mean, if you didn't take care of your grandparents, you yeah. look at as like, you know, like you, 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 you weren't taking care of your family correctly. So that's sort of like the economic and geographic picture. Of course, we are focused on California because we know it really well and it gives us a competitive advantage to be able to create viable new housing in a market that's very housing and uh, constrained for political reasons, meaning our right. political environment is not conducive to building enough housing. So it's always supply constraint, right? That's part of the reason we have that constraint. And then just, you know, functionally on, uh, on, on, on deals, I'm really pretty brutal these days about like what sites I cho choose. In fact, there's a running joke that, you know, as a young project manager, there was no deal I couldn't make work. Right. Every deal. I'm a great problem solver, man. This thing's hard. That thing's hairy. That's difficult, complicated. I take those things on. And I work for other people and I did this. And I did that some in the early parts of Pacific's lifetime also. But now I'm like, if there's anything that's weird about the site, you know, if it's got a slope, if it's got environmental issues, even if they're light duty, if it's got a heavy duty entitlement process, meaning like a government approvals, like a rezoning people might think of, or general plan of rezoning in California is what we do. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to stay away from that. And I, and I will like, you know, yeah, just yesterday with our acquisition team, we, we went through a, a series of deals and I got, I have a couple interns on there. So I, I went through like the way we assess the deal. And one of the sites was actually a really great site, perfect location, you know, 
uh, you know, right size, you know, it's rectangular, it's flat, you know, those are a couple other criteria that we have or square, right. And flat. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I looked at it, it was, it was a big enough site, but it was a site that was in the middle of an R1 zone neighborhood for like blocks and blocks all around it. This was like in the middle. And I told <laughs> the, the acquisition guy who brought it to me, I go, dude, I go that like, that's going to be a political fight of your life. Those neighbors across the street will like, just they'll, they'll pummel us. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I said, I don't want to take that on. I mean, one, we would probably lose that. I don't even think the city, in fact, in, in planning domains, there's a, something called spot zoning, which is mm-hmm. you, know, you can't take one site in the middle of a bunch of other R1 sites and make it R3, yeah. right? You're, you're spot zoning, which is not allowed under, you know, most planning laws, particularly California. Um, so, you know, any, anything, so, you know, we look for the, the, the easiest sites or the least complexity. In fact, this is the way I, I think of it. For me now, complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development, right? The more complicated it is, the, the less likely you are to be profitable or the more likely you're to be low or, or no profit, right? Mm-hmm. And so we really look for like a production home building model. We use the same unit design or we have a couple different plans, but the five and four bath, we have a specific plan type that we use. And we just lay that plan out in, in you know, groups of buildings on a site. And we just fit as many as we can appropriately for, for good design on a site. But we build the same unit over and over again. So our subs know the units. We use the same specs. You know, we're always refining to make it better, of course. Um, but, you know, our framer knows like our, our unit type, our, our yeah. unit plan and builds it over and over again. And so he knows it so he can price it effectively. We trust his pricing because there's not like some weird thing he's got to frame and and he's got a bust in his numbers that he didn't anticipate and that ends up being our problem. So I, I think the overarching thing is just simplicity. And mm-hmm. I don't mean simple because development's never simple, but it's simplification or more simplicity to remove barriers to like, you know, or things that lower your confidence level of, of clean and good execution, right? This comes back to confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can do rezones, Matt, like we're really good at it. I've done like tons and tons of autonomous work, but because we know that so well, we go, let's not do that. We know yeah. what that is. And we know that's complicated. <laughs> Pain and suffering. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we know what that's going to look like. And we still may get to the end and lose, right? When you're in that sort of a political process, you could get to the end and the council has got pissed off neighbors, you know, pounding on the podium at the city council meeting. And, you know, in most, you know, big cities, particularly in California, you're going to lose that battle. Now oh, the yeah. state is doing some things to, to enhance housing laws that really are like arm twisting the cities into, you know, like producing more housing. And, and some cities are like on board. They, they want to do it. And they, but you know, the, the general political environment is neighborhoods do not want apartments in their around them, in them, in their city, even, um, and so we just, we, we go in like recognizing realities operations and go, if we buy a site that's already zoned, we don't have that. We don't have to go to the neighbors or the politicians for like a, 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 a please approve this, a discretionary entitlement. We can just go. Yeah. Neighbors will still be grumpy. Oh, what are you doing building those apartments? That was an empty lot. They told me it was going to be a park, right, man. I've heard that story yeah. hundreds of times. You know, never was going to be a park. It was a residentially zoned site for R3. There's other apartments around it. You know, people are dumping couches on it. 
like usually we're solving a pretty big problem. And I, I will share that many times the neighbors right around the site are like, dude, we're so glad you're here. We have yeah. such problems and, you know, people are out, you know, in the middle of the night think? drinking beer, like we're removing a, a nuisance. And, and then, you know, they're like, Hey, can I get an application to rent? Cause uh, you, you <laughs> got five pretty nice. <laughs> it's brand new. And and by the way, it's usually brand new in neighborhoods that haven't seen new housing for like, we just finished a deal in Fullerton, Orange County, that neighborhood around our site probably has not seen new housing for 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. so and so people are like, wow. This floor, new? Yeah. And then we got the five bedrooms, which that by itself is wholly differentiated. Our units have air conditioning you know, two car garage in unit laundry room, which, you know, for most people, the thing like, oh yeah, of course, you know, doesn't everybody have air conditioning? And the answer is no, particularly at this income demographic, these families are coming from older apartment units that actually most often don't have air conditioning, don't have a garage, don't have an in-unit laundry room, don't have new, ha new flooring, quartz countertops. You know, I mean, we're not building a luxury product, but, you know, we're actually pretty well, you know, uh, you know, designed from a finishes standpoint. So when people show up to our unit, they're like, dude, I've never seen a, 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 an apartment unit like this. In fact, the, the one of the questions we get often is now is uh, this is for rent? Like, this looks like so nice. You should be selling this. And we go, yeah. no, this is rental housing. This is, you know, for families that can't necessarily save up for a down payment to buy a house you know, we're, we're, you know, we're serving that demographic that can't buy the house. I'm just curious before we move on, do you guys also self-manage these? Yeah, great question. So on the smaller early projects, we self-manage, you know, smaller projects just tend not to be as attractive to the better property managers. Um, but as soon as we move into, you know, where we've got several projects that are in the, you know, larger unit count per project, uh, we'll start to, look at you know third parties and we have existing you know projects that we built you know prior to the uth model that we still own and, and have third parties so uh we're not necessarily trying to build a property management arm and we have a small mm -hmm. team that we put together to manage these early projects successfully so we have a head of property management and then we have a you know property management coordinator that they work together and then our book you know county team so that's you know we could we could manage you know several several projects under just that team right now and then you know if a big enough project will have an on-site manager uh, okay. smaller projects usually will not uh in california the law has a certain unit count that if you're below that you don't have to have uh, an on-site manager so on oh, okay. those we, the small ones we typically don't awesome so one last little question what what do you think the uh common misconception is around workforce housing is it that it is low-income housing or is there yeah, I would agree with that. You know, I'll go back to the days so when I worked for Mike Costa at Kaufman and Broad, we did like true actual affordable housing. You know, these were low income families. And, you know, the, you know, the common, you know, refrain in from neighbors and, you know, city council people and people in the political environment were, oh, you know, those people, you know, you know, we don't want those people. If my they backyard. Were, yeah. If they were, yeah, NIMBY. Um, and the reality is, you know, in, in that income category, sometimes there are those people. But the reality is, if you look at the majority of people who are low income, they're, they're you know, usually gainfully employed. I mean, you know, we're not actually I worked with a, um, 
work with the person who's a property manager in, the, in a, one of the corporate jobs I had. She always said a great, she said, look, affordable housing is not safety net housing. This is not at least the housing that we did uh, under the low income housing tax credit section 42 program. This is not for your person walking off the street as a homeless person into now transitional, you know, mm -hmm. permanent supportive housing. Um, I mean, that's become more common, you know, since I left doing that particular, you know, affordable type of true affordable housing, you know, several years back. Um, so this is for families that are that are they have income. You know, they may not have a lot of income, but you know, maybe they've got a Section Eight voucher or they've got a job. Maybe one or two people have a job, and they're just not making a whole bunch of money. And so, these are people that have you know good track records of their employment. These are people that have good track record in their housing history. Um, you know, as any any property manager would, you're gonna you're gonna necessarily resist the people who are like you know have had evictions and had problems like maintain it you know we're in the midst of the pandemic which is an unusual time but you know the eviction moratorium sort of you know like like removes that threat of eviction if somebody's having a challenge some people are taking advantage of that but i think a lot of people are doing it you know like like appropriately like they really are under or unemployed and you know trying to work it out um but i you know i hear stories of you know both categories people are that are legitimately unemployed and people who are like you know like you know stating that and doing that to take advantage right which is which is unfortunate so i think so there's that those people i think one of the misconceptions when people think about and this probably is more these are more about true affordable than workforce housing but you could think of them you know interchangeably here a little bit you know that the quality is going to be really bad mm -hmm. it's going to look horrible and there are people that by the way developers that build really bad looking housing i mean i'll be the first to admit um, you know, we're not, we're, we don't build our units to win any architectural awards. Um, we build it as, it's like production housing. It's mm -hmm. intended to be built cost effectively because ultimately what we care about is we want to deliver the rents that are appropriate to the families that are going to live. You know, we need to make, we need to make a profitable deal and, and produce returns to our investors. So the balance is a good product that, you know, as rates as affordable as possible. Because remember, we're workforce housing but we don't have any restrictions or covenants to, to restrict rents or cap rents. Mm -hmm. We're still a market-based offer, but we're by our way, our model is reducing the, the, the cost or really our model is by having the housing cost, um, you know, like house multiple earners and those earners are, you know, paying for the housing. And so the, that works together, you know, in a coordinated fashion. But I think a lot of people, they go, oh, you know, workforce housing, you know, that's, that's uh, that's low income housing. That's Section Eight. That's HUD housing. Um, and you go, no, this is actually really for us. Our answer is we're we're market rate housing that happens to be built and located in a style of housing, i.e., our five bedroom unit that serves these families, you know, at an appropriate you know percentage of their income towards rents. But we're not you know low end. You know, we're not mm. you know bad. Uh, you know, badly built. You know, very poor quality housing, you know, we're particularly because we own long-term, you know, we have to build it to last for, you know, a long time. I mean, I really want to hold these assets in perpetuity personally, you know, as a, yeah. as the CEO of the company. Yeah, definitely. And we'll go into that here. It's like, I, I just want to wrap up. This is one of my favorite questions to ask others uh, is if I was to, you know, Wikipedia, your name mm -hmm. or urban Pacific's name in the future, 200 years in the future, what would it say about you and your company and what you built? Yeah. 
or, or what would I want it to say? <laughs> that... No, no. It's what do you believe it will say? Yeah. So I think we, we've really, over the last two and a half years, we've done a lot of work in the public domain to really get the message out there about workforce housing generally and UTH specifically. Um, and so I think, you know, when, when, if, you know, people, I mean, I know, like I answer this cause the, I know that's what the search to show now. Um, but I think, you, you know, you would see a predominance of the focus on workforce housing. Like we wanted to like, you know, sort of the do well by doing good, you know, this is, you know, we don't call this social impact housing, but it is a version of social impact and, you know, we're able to produce a profit while we do it. So I think that would show up. Um, you know, I think that for the, you know, people would see that, you know, we, we did, a, we did a lot of stuff in the public domain, you know, we, we, we did a lot of projects, um, you know, we did a lot of media to talk about workforce housing podcasts and articles and, you know, videos, YouTube, et cetera. Um, and then I don't think it would show up so much, but I think, you know, one of the things that we work for that I maybe, you know, does show up to some degree is that, you know, just that, you know, you know, myself and the team that works for our company and the, the people that are the networks that work with our company vendors um, were, were, you know, had, had, you know, highly valued accomplishments and were trustworthy and leaders in the business. And I don't mean leader to, to like command people that, but that we really had a, a, a positive, powerful, you know, intention and agenda that we wanted to put forth. Like, like one of the things I say, Matt, is, hey, you know, our UTH model is one interpretation of how to resolve middle-income housing costs for families. But I'm the first to say we need like thousands more of those. Like, if we're ever going to catch up to our housing demand versus supply to, for it to be relatively balanced, I, I'm, I'm, I won't be the only person doing it, and Urban Pacific won't be the only company putting that forth. But I'm encouraging people. Part of the reason I'm, you know, do podcasts and go out in the public domain is like, look, this is a this is a growing problem. I mean, the pandemic only accelerated that, you know, mm -hmm. significantly, but it really just exposed an already existing issue, which is that we've got this middle class, which isn't, you know, like supported by the government in a subsidized way that doesn't necessarily afford like the super high end luxury, you know, rooftop pool product. These are, you know, salt of the earth, blue collar working families. And they've been bypassed, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're probably the most damaged by inflation because they still have to produce, you know, they have to work, you know, W-2, sometimes they're entrepreneurs, um, but they've been left behind. Nobody's really focused on, you know, providing housing solutions to them. And so we're deeply enthusiastic to, to be able to, you know, travel in that space. But, you know, we're, we need a bunch, bunch of people doing it. I love it. I love it. I know that's not an easy question to really answer, so mm -hmm. I appreciate. No, it's a good one. I love it. I that, that's that's a new that shows up for, <laughs> very narrow, very unique. So great question. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time. Hopefully, we get a part two at some point. Yeah, happy to do came it. Came up with plenty of questions over the time, but uh, just recap here, Scott. Where can they find out more about you? And urban Pacific. And so for your listeners, I'll, I'll make this offer. If you go to our website, triple uh, forward slash ebook, um, go to that link and you can uh, sign up for our Saturday e-blast and, and get an ebook that we just issued called how to survive and thrive in a recession, which I think is a, is a timely 
uh, writing. And that was something I wrote, come, you know, bringing a lot of lessons forward out of the 2008 recession, how to apply those now, you know, we're, although we're, I think we're in recovery from this recession, but also to teach people how to anticipate future recessions. Cause it will, as I've said, come along. So go get our ebook and then you'll sign up for our email list. And every Saturday we issue uh, an email that usually has something that, that we're tracking, like economic cycle tracking. We do this very rigorously. I'm, I'm reading, you know, probably several articles every week. And this is sort of a curated, you know, group of those, um, you know, several articles, you know, we, we publish podcasts so people can, you know, see what's out there in the marketplace for in the podcast world, but really trying to telegraph what we're seeing in, in trends in, in the economic cycle and demographic trends, you know, market trends, you know, rents going up, rents going down. And uh, really, really it's all oriented around, you know, producing knowledge, uh, executable knowledge for investors, right? Uh, and then when people are on the website, go to our investor education section and we have a, a just a, a really deep pool of videos, articles and podcasts that really are all oriented around educating investors about workforce housing. You know, if people are investors that are looking to, you know, move into investing in new construction development and, you know, maybe away from value add, you know, we, we, we write a lot about that. And then again, just the general economic cycle and, you know, market tracking, which, you know, every real estate person needs to do, you know, uh, you know, a lot of, and particularly now we're, you know, we're so deeply disrupted that, you know, like I'm, I'm amplifying my reading even more. And so the Saturday thing is just a sharing of that, you know, every, every Saturday, like a drumbeat. That's awesome. There's tons of good information in there and I'll, I'll provide links in the, my show blog as well. So I appreciate Great. it, Scott. Keep doing what right. you're doing. Keep it okay, up. Okay, Matt. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.